Wow. That was so good. All right, let's have a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, we uh, come to you in the name of Jesus, and we thank you for the truth we just, we just heard in the spoken word. Lord, we thank you that you are here with us. We believe that when you went to the cross and you died in our place and you were buried in the grave, that the grave didn't hold you, but you were raised back to life. And through your Holy Spirit poured out that you are here present with us. And we call upon now the Holy Spirit. Lord, you said in your word that the Spirit would guide us into all truth. And Lord, as we think about that truth, each one of us tonight has a different way that you are working in our lives, in our minds, and in our hearts. And Lord, I ask that you would guide each one of us to your truth tonight. The truth that Jesus is risen, the truth that Jesus is here, the truth that you know everything that's going on in our lives Lord, I know some of us tonight are, are feeling tired. Give us energy. Give us mental energy, physical, emotional energy, spiritual energy that can only come from you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Well, so good to be here with you tonight. Love the uh, neon colors I'm seeing. Wow, this is cool. And uh, congrats to all of you guys that did that belly flop contest that was amazing. <laughs> I was just watching that going like, oh man, in, in the younger days maybe, but right now I'm very happy to just watch you all flop into that pond. Well, hey, uh, I want to share you guys a, a little story. When my wife Chris was pregnant with our first son Noah, uh, life was busy. It was uh, exhausting actually. I was uh, going, you know, studying in seminary, working about full-time kind of in the education uh, world uh, and just tired every week, I remember, and money was so tight, and then, you know, we weren't actually, you know, necessarily expecting to have uh, Chris get pregnant so soon. We were thankful, but it was like a little bit of a, a surprise blessing, and I remember just being stressed out a lot, and so when Friday came around, Friday night, one of the things we'd love to do is just go, go rent a movie. Now, you guys don't understand what I mean when I say that necessarily. Well, you, you, we'd have to drive to a store, an actual video store. I don't think you know, most of you even know, maybe you've seen like history documentaries or something like that. But we used to actually have to physically get in our car, drive to a, a place called Blockbuster Video. And okay, you guys know it. Maybe you've seen the last Blockbuster, right? The documentary. So my friend actually is a pastor in Bend, Oregon. Last Blockbuster in the world is there. But anyways, you would find your movie on a shelf in a big VHS tape. And half the time the movie you wanted was checked out. You couldn't get it. You'd have to settle for like a, your second, third, fourth option but I remember this night as I was going to go, I, I just, I was listening to this, this missionary on the radio talking about trusting God and all this ministry they had in Cambodia. And for some reason, when I, when I got in the parking lot and turned my car off, I just sat there for a minute because I was tired. And I had this thought, it, it wasn't an audible voice, but it seemed like it was maybe from the Lord. And it was just this thought, hey, tonight, don't rent a movie Go home and just spend some time with your wife in prayer tonight. Just go, go home to Chris and, and just pray. And, you know, don't get me wrong. I'm not a, against watching movies or anything. It was just in that moment I felt like for that particular night I should go home and, and I should spend some time praying. But I'll, but, but I'll be honest with you. I, I thought, yeah, I'm tired. I'm going to go get that movie. Right? And I just got, in the, got out of the car, went and got the movie, just chalked it up. Well, that was just some thought I had, whatever. 
So when I pulled out of the parking lot after I got the movie, it was like some George Clooney movie. <laughs> um, I didn't even see the car coming, but I heard a horn blasting. I saw headlights and bam, right where I was sitting, this car just T-boned me. And my, I mean, my car just went flying in the middle of the, the street. Uh, miraculously, I, I walked out of the car. I went out the passenger side. The people come out of the car, they're screaming all kinds of profanities at me because I did cut in front of them. It was completely my fault. And uh, this speed zone, the, the speed uh, limit was 50 miles an hour on the street. This was in uh, La Mirada. And man, after everything was said and done, my car was towed off. I got a ticket. People were mad at me. And I was actually just left standing there by myself. Like there was no cell phones in those days. I'm like, oh, I got to get home now. So I walked home. It wasn't too far. I was just down the street. But I remember feeling that weekend so depressed, so uh, like just full of shame, like, oh my gosh, what, what have I done? You know, here I'm studying to be a pastor and it seems like the Holy Spirit, you know, nudged me with something and I disobeyed him and now my car's told I already don't have hardly any money and my wife is pregnant and what am I going to do? And I just, and as I laid in the bed, I, I was going back and forth between kind of God, why would you let this happen? You know, don't you know what I'm going through to like vacillating to like, oh, I'm such a worthless person. Like just, I don't know if you ever do that, but you know, some, anyway, a little confession here, I guess for me, I was just going back and forth. And, and then in the midst of it all, I just had this thought again, come to my mind, go look up Isaiah 58, 11. And I thought, oh, okay. Now I'm not really often, I don't, I don't do like the just look up a verse kind of thing. I, I was thinking, I I go, if I'm going to look that verse up, I'm going to go and there's not even going to be an Isaiah 58, 11 that exists. I'm going to feel really stupid. Or worse, it's going to say something like, the Lord smites you, sinner. You know, you're an idiot, right? I'm like, I don't want to read that right now. I feel that already. But I finally said, okay, I'll get up out of the bed. I'll, I'll go read it. And when I, I looked at the verse, this is what it said. It said, the Lord will guide you always. He will satisfy your needs in a sun-scorched land and will strengthen your frame. You will be like a well-watered garden, like a spring whose waters never fail. And I know in the context of that verse, it's speaking to the nation of Israel. But in that moment, applicationally, it spoke to my life. It just spoke to me, Josh, you, you are not alone. I am with you. I know your circumstances. I know your life. That, that wasn't a punishment to you. I care about you. And, and what it spoke to me is that the Lord will sustain me, that the Lord is my life. Even if my circumstances don't change, even if my situation gets worse, the Lord is life. The Lord sustains me. The Lord is with me. I'm never alone. And you know, when I went to pick up my car, uh, the guy looked at me and he said, were you the guy driving this car? And I said, yeah. And he goes, how is it you're walking around? And I said, well, I don't know. I just got this little bruise. On my, that was all I got, a little bruise on my side about the size of a quarter. He said, well, well look, the, the seat moved to the other side of the car. And I said, no, that's probably why I didn't get hurt. He said, no, you don't understand. The impact from the car T-boning you moved the seat. So you should have been impacted with that hit. You shouldn't be walking around right now. So you can imagine I was just overwhelmed by God's grace in that moment. Friends, I share this with you because tonight we want to talk about Jesus being the living water, the bread of life, 
We've talked about the truth of God. We've talked about the truth of Scripture. And tonight we're going to talk about the truth of Jesus, His life and teaching. Um, We're going to give an overview of quite a few chapters, chapters 2 through 6. But really, we're going to zoom in just on chapter 4. So it'll just be an overview of those other chapters, zooming in on chapter 4. So uh, if you got your Bibles, open up to John 2. And I just want to just make a few points about John 2. So at this point in John 2, remember at the end of uh, chapter 1, Jesus called disciples to himself. And he's only got six disciples at this point. It's the brothers Andrew and Peter, the brothers James and John, and then Philip and Nathaniel. And Jesus performs now his first miracle um, at a wedding in a place called Cana. Now, as we go through these chapters in John, we might take it for granted, maybe if we've read it before, we've heard it before, but try to put yourself in the place of the disciples that everything they're experiencing is new and it creates a sense of wonder and awe as they see Jesus live out his ministry. So there's, there's three ways that, that Christ is revealed here in John chapter 2, three revelations about Christ that John gives us. Number one is his glory at this wedding. He turns water into wine at this wedding And it's incredible, right? And John chapter 2, verse 11 says, The beginning of his signs Jesus did in Cana of Galilee and manifested his glory and his disciples believed in him. Well, then moving on from there, the next thing we see is the passion of Jesus, or you might say the zeal of Jesus, because he goes to the the temple, okay? So they're they're down now in in, uh, Jerusalem where the temple is. And the temple, for those of you who may not be familiar, the temple was... Uh, one of the wonders of the ancient world is gigantic temple built by King Herod where all the Jews would make a pilgrimage to, to worship. And, and Jesus and his disciples come and he cleanses the temple in his passion, meaning there's these guys out there who are, who are basically turning the temple into a place to only make money. It started out probably with good intentions. We're going to exchange your foreign money and give you, you know, the Jewish money so you can buy your sacrifices to help out the travelers. But over time, it developed into a very lucrative religious business, and there was no more ministry happening. It was all business. And unfortunately, they were doing it in a court of the Gentiles. Now, the Gentiles are anybody who's not Jewish. So in the minds of the Jewish people, these are the people that don't know God. You have Jew and Gentile. So unless you're Jewish, you are a Gentile. And they put the money and the the tables right in the court of the Gentiles and so the sad, the tragic thing about that was is the very people who didn't know God, who needed the Jews' help to come to know God, were actually being uh, prevented from knowing God because it was just becoming a place of business. They were being mistreated. And so Jesus sees this, and it angers him. Yes, Jesus did get angry. You know, it is possible to be angry and to not sin, and Jesus shows us that. It's a righteous anger. And he puts some rope cords together, and he goes full-on Indiana Jones on these guys, and he clears the temple, knocks their tables in. I didn't hurt anybody, but he cleared that temple. And, And sometimes we forget that passionate, powerful side of Jesus. See, he did come the first time. He comes as the suffering servant, and he allows himself to be mistreated. He allows himself to be beaten and arrested and put on a cross to die for our sins and all that. But when Jesus comes again, He's that other picture of the Messiah. He's the conquering king. The book of Revelation is real clear. He's going to come and he's going to vanquish evil and nobody's going to mess with him when he returns. So we see the zeal of Jesus. Then we also see the knowledge of Jesus. Verses 23 and 25 say, Now when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover during the feast, 
Many believed in his name, observing his signs which he was doing. But Jesus, on his part, was not entrusting himself to them, for he knew all men. And because he did not need anyone to testify concerning man, for he himself knew what was in man. So here's, Jesus has knowledge into people's hearts. We see that right here. Uh, These people around Jesus, many people were believing in him, but their faith wasn't rooted in who he really was. They were thinking, well, maybe he's a good teacher. Maybe he's uh, connected to God, but he's not God himself. Maybe he's going to lead a revolution and overthrow the Roman Empire and lead us to freedom from their oppression. Um, Maybe he's just, he does miracles and I want to benefit from his miracles. So people are believing, but Jesus knows that their belief is not really rooted in a sense of awe and wonder just for who he is. Um, It's one thing to believe in Jesus because we want him to do something we want him to do. It's another thing entirely to say, no, I I believe in you for who you are. I want to follow you with my life. And at the end of the day, Jesus doesn't leave middle ground. He is the way, the truth, and the life. Uh, You know, just a few weeks ago, I was at a cafe in Fresno. It's called La Boulangerie. And uh, we we like to call it La Boo, all right, just to (laughs) keep it simple. But it's this French bakery, coffee place, pretty cool. It's right near the church. And I was meeting this guy. I hadn't hadn't talked to this guy for years. And he just kind of reached out of the blue and said, hey, I'd like to meet. And uh, he was a guy that I'd known. He'd done worship ministry. Good dude. Really good dude when I knew him. uh, But I hadn't seen him for years. And as we started the conversation, he looked at me and he said, I just want to tell you, um, I'm not a Christian. Um, I don't believe any of this anymore. And he even used the word. He said, I've deconstructed my faith. And he went on to explain to me what he's doing now. And it's like, okay, wow, interesting. And as our conversation sort of went on, uh, one of the things I I asked him, well, because he said he, he, you know, he got disillusioned with church culture, and, and so the conversation went to Jesus. Well, well, it, it's not about church culture. We're always going to be disappointed by certain things that happen in the church. I mean, I'm going to hurt you. I'm going to offend you probably because we're all sinful people still. We still struggle, right? And, and he said, well, yeah, and, and, and we kind of got to the, the conversation of, uh, is Jesus Lord, lunatic, or liar? Maybe you've heard that before because he either, uh, he either was who he said he was, or he was either crazy, like completely out of his mind, insane, or he was evil. He doesn't leave the option of being a good teacher. C.S. Lewis is the first one to use that phrase. He, he, he leaves us the options that he's either Lord, or he's a lunatic, or he's a liar. And, and I guess to his credit, the, the man I was talking to, he said, I know. He's either Lord, lunatic, or liar. I know that. I'm just not sure which one he is. And you know, what we need to do, friends, is before we continue, it's just we need to be honest with ourselves. I ask each one of you to just take a moment even and ponder that question. Who do you believe Jesus is to you? Is he Lord? Is he a lunatic? Or is he a liar? Because the options he gives are one of the three the things that Jesus taught, if it wasn't true, we can't say he was good. He's Lord, lunatic, or liar. Well, that leads us to a conversation in John chapter 3 where a man named Nicodemus comes to Jesus. Uh, Nicodemus, uh, he represents kind of the best in the nation of Israel. He's a teacher of the lies, a Pharisee. So he's, he's, uh, he's a member of this uh, thing called the Sanhedrin that's sort of the Jewish ruling council, political and spiritual power they have. But he, he comes to him and uh, he says, you know, we know that you come from God as a teacher, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. 
And then Jesus answers and says, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. And Nicodemus is like, well, how can you be born again when you're old? You can't enter your mother's womb a second time and be born, can you? And Jesus says, unless one is born of the water and the spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. Now, this, this statement bothers Nicodemus because he's thinking, look, as a Jew, I've been born into the kingdom of God. We're the chosen people. It's a given. Why would we have to be born again? But Jesus is making clear here, and Paul does later in the letters, that it's always been the case that just because you're born into a family that follows God doesn't automatically make you also a follower of God. Jesus is saying that your entrance into this kingdom that I'm establishing is not about your earthly lineage, it's about your spiritual lineage, your heavenly lineage. The point is this, is that you can't approach God on your own terms. Something has to happen where we encounter the truth of who Jesus is, and we respond to that truth. We hear the gospel, we believe, and we place our faith in Christ. The most famous verse of the Bible is in John 3, verse 16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. Right? We see that at sports events. The guys behind home plate, they hold that sign up a lot of times. Well, that's the verse. And then the verses that follow, there are also equally important. They say, for God did not send the Son into the world to judge the world, but that the world might be saved through him. He who believes in him is not judged. He who does not believe in him has been judged already because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. So this is what Jesus lays out for us. And now we get to see kind of this inaction in a person's life as we move to John chapter 4, the woman at the well. Jeremy talked about her earlier as we were worshiping. Verse 3 of John 4 says this, uh, Jesus, he left Judea, uh, so he left the area where Jerusalem is, and he, he went up north, he went away again into Galilee, and he had to pass through Samaria. Now that's interesting, because here, here's the deal. There were two ways you could get from Judea, Jerusalem, up to Galilee. One was the way that Jesus and his disciples take. The other was further east of the Jordan River, and it was longer, but that's the way most Jews traveled, okay? Kind of like, you know, when you guys drove here, your GPS probably told you which way to go, and it picks the shortest route usually. Uh, and, you know, so last time I went down, last weekend I was down in Riverside, and I traveled one direction, and the, the way home, they took me right through the desert, right? It was crazy, right? Desert towns, but that was a shorter route. Well, Jesus uh, cho chooses the shorter route, which takes him through Samaria. But the Jews never went that way. They always took the long way. The reason is the Samaritan people and the Jewish people hated each other, fiercely hated each other, despised each other. And there was a long history of this, hundreds of years. Here's, here's the reason. Now, Samaritan people still exist. They, I, I met some of them when I was in Israel, okay? But in the Old Testament, Israel had been one nation under King David and King Solomon. And then after King Solomon, uh, they split in two. They had like a civil war. There was a northern kingdom and a, uh, and a southern kingdom. And the northern kingdom was like wicked from the get-go, nothing but wicked kings, idol worship, immorality. And in short time, they were conquered by another empire called Assyria. And when Assyria conquered the northern kingdom of Israel, 
they imported a bunch of the other peoples they had conquered with all their false gods and worship, and they intermarried with the Jewish people. So what was created was a brand new ethnic group, the Samaritans. Now, me personally, I've always been a little partial to the Samaritans because I come from kind of a mixed ethnic background myself. My dad is white. He is uh, mostly Scottish and, uh, you know, from England and North, Northwestern Europe. My mom's half Mexican, half Filipino. So I'm kind of like this half quarter quarter. And I've only met two people. They both go to my church, actually. Two other people besides my sister who have that same kind of mix. And so it's like growing up, I was always asked questions like, so, so what are you exactly? You know, and, and uh, but the cool part about it is almost every country I've gone to, they speak to me in their native language. Like I've been to Chile, Mexico, Cuba, Spain, Turkey, Greece, Italy, Lebanon, Israel, all those countries, they come up talking to me like I'm a native there. So that's kind of cool. But anyways, I don't want to digress too much. Back then, this was not cool. Um, in fact, these two groups hated each other. Samaritans developed their own system of worship, but Jesus chooses to go to this region. Why? Because Jesus is the great reconciler. Jesus is the great unifier. Jesus loves all people, and he wants all people to be united in his name. So we go to verse 7. There came a woman of Samaria to draw water. Jesus said to her, give me a drink, for his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. Therefore, the Samaritan woman said to him, How is it that you, being a Jew, ask me for a drink since I am a Samaritan woman? For Jews have no dealings with the Samaritans. Jesus answered and said to her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is who says to you, Give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. She said to him, Sir, you have nothing to draw with and the well is deep. When, uh, where then do you get that living water? You are not greater than our father Jacob, are you? who gave us the well and drank of it himself and his sons and his cattle. And Jesus answered and said to her, everyone who drinks of this water will thirst again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him shall never thirst. But the water that I will give him will become in him a well of water springing up to eternal life. And the woman said to him, sir, give me this water so I will not be thirsty nor come all the way here to draw. So a couple observations here first. This woman is out here at the heat of the day. Why is she out there at the heat of the day? Well, it's because even within her own people, she's an outcast. We're going to see why in just a moment. So here's Jesus as a Jew talking to a Samaritan, crossing one line. As a man talking to a woman in that culture was not a common thing or really even an acceptable thing in such a context, crossing another line. But he's also speaking to one who's an outcast among her own people, so he's crossing even a third line. And so we see the heart of compassion, the heart of love, the heart of grace that Jesus has here in this moment. She questions why he's even doing this, but Jesus makes some claims. He says if, if she really knew who he was, she would know that he is the fulfillment of everything that she's looking for in life. He proclaims himself to be the source of living water. She's focused on the physical water, but he's talking about something so much greater Right? Jeremy talked about that earlier, even as we were worshiping. There's a clear allusion here to the, the deity of Christ, or the fact that Christ is God in the flesh, because Jeremiah 2, verse 13, and chapter 17, verse 13, both call God the fountain of living water. And here Jesus is proclaiming he's that fountain of living water. He can give that to her in this moment. So you see, when Jesus makes claims like that, we can't just say he's a good teacher. If somebody goes around saying, I'm, I'm God, revealed to you in the flesh. If he's not telling the truth, the dude is wacko 
or he's evil. That's it. (laughs) Or he is who he said he is. Jesus says, I'm the living water. He's proclaiming that only in him the fullness of life and meaning and hope can be found. He's, He's telling her, hey, all your wants, all your desires, all your cares, all the pursuits of this world, they they fall short, but in me, you don't have to search for purpose and meaning anymore. You don't have to search for hope. You have found it right here. I will satisfy. But now things are going to get real. Look at verse 16 here, chapter 4. It says, go call your husband and come here. And the woman answered and said, I have no husband. And Jesus said to her, you have correctly said, I have no husband. For you have had five husbands, and the one whom you now have is not your husband. This you have said truly. Whoa. (laughs) So there's grace and there's love, and there's also truth. Jesus calls this out, and look what the woman says. She says, "Uh, sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. (laughs) It's like, okay, I mean, here's the thing is uh, there's no way Jesus could know this. Jews and Samaritans didn't interact. Jesus had never been there. This was a pre-digital age. There's no online profile for her. There's no electronic records of her marital past. Jesus knows this supernaturally. So she's like, hey, you're a, you're a prophet, aren't you? And then she kind of tries to change the subject by getting into a debate about where Samaritans worship and Jews worship. And Jesus says something interesting to her in verse 24. God is spirit and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. So the point Jesus is making here with the point about spirit and truth is the spirit speaks to the very presence of God. This speaks and highlights to the longing that God has a desire to have a relationship with you and me. He's speaking to this woman. God wants worshipers in spirit and truth. Yes, he wants us to know reality. He wants us to know truth, but he also wants us to know spirit. He wants us to know him. He longs for that. Worshipers in spirit and truth. And then the woman says in verse 25, I know that Messiah is coming. He was called Christ. When that one comes, he will declare all things to us. And Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. Now listen, this is the first time Jesus publicly declares for himself that he's the Messiah. What does that say about him? To a woman who is of a hated ethnic group, to an outcast among her own people, This shows the incredible heart, the gracious heart of God, the heart for all those, sometimes particularly those who would consider themselves on the outside, outsiders. Uh, He leaves the 99 to find the one. And then what happens here is Jesus, as he speaks this hope, I am the one, he says. I am he, the one spoken about since the beginning the anointed one of God sent to restore creation. I'm the one who's come to bring living water and fullness of life. That Jesus is the only truth that satisfies our souls. Jesus um, is in the business of renovating souls. He's in the business of restoration. Grace and truth, love and truth intersect perfectly in this moment. And sometimes it can be painful to have our hearts renovated to experience transformation. Jesus had to call out what was going on in this woman's life so that she could truly experience change. And that's the way it goes sometimes. You know, guys, this last year, I had two shoulder surgeries. The right one just three months ago, this one about nine months ago. Really bad. 
like extensive tears on my rotator cuffs, bone spurs, impingements, bicep stuff. I mean, it was bad. And the surgeries hurt. And here's the thing. These were old injuries that he's never dealt with. So any of you young people getting injured, go to the doctor. Any of you older people, you got something going on, go see the doctor. Look, what I found out is that an MRI from a doctor works a lot better than internet research on my own. But okay, that's my, my pitch on that. My point, though, is in the same way that I need that physical surgery and it hurt and reconstructing was not pretty. The physical therapy is painful, but I need it. I truly want to be restored. So we need the same in our lives spiritually. Where does God need to do the surgery? Where does God need to do the therapy in your life, friends? Where do you need to come to the light? Where might God be poking and saying, come to the light, just like with this woman, come and experience the truth. Well, after this life-changing encounter, the woman gets up, she tells her town. We're told that many believe because of what she told them. And then in verse 41 and 42, many more believe because of his word. And they were saying to the woman, it is no longer because of what you said that we believe, for we have heard for ourselves and know that this one is indeed the savior of the world. So look at that. The outcast now becomes the one who reaches her entire town. She's God's tool to reach the town uh, for Christ. So Jesus goes from there. He performs another miracle at the end of chapter four. And then we move to chapter five where there's this public miracle, the first real public miracle of Jesus. Not only is it public, but he does it on the Sabbath day. So among the Jews, they had a day of rest. This was prescribed in the Old Testament where they weren't supposed to do any kind of work. And what the Pharisees, the religious leaders did is they piled a bunch of rules on top of what even God's word said. So they took the challenge of living the law, and they made it even harder and harder and more and more difficult and almost impossible. So Jesus walks into Jerusalem, chooses to heal a guy who's been uh, an invalid. He's been ill for 38 years, and he does it intentionally on the Sabbath. And this really makes the religious leaders so angry about this. Verse 16 of chapter 5 says, For this reason the Jews were persecuting Jesus because he was doing these things on the Sabbath but he answered them, my father is working until now and I myself am working. So notice that Jesus says that he is one with the father. My father is working and I myself am working. He's making a claim to be equal with God. And look at how angry this makes the religious leaders. Verse 18, for this reason, therefore, the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him because he was not only breaking the Sabbath, but he was also calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. Therefore, Jesus answered and was saying to them, truly, truly, I say to you, the son can do nothing of himself unless it is something he sees the father doing. For whatever the father does, these things the son also does in like manner. So listen, the, mo the worst thing you could do as a Jewish person was to claim to be God. It was considered blasphemy. So if Jesus at all wanted to clear things up, like, no, look, I'm just a good teacher. I'm not saying I'm God or anything like that. Just follow some principles, like love your neighbor and we're good. He would have made the point here real clear. Like, that's not what I'm saying. But instead he says, no, verily, verily, I say unto you, yeah, that's what I'm saying. The Father and I are one. What he does, I do because we are one. He's equal. And the authors of the New Testament confirm this over and over again. For example, Hebrews 1.3 Christ is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his nature and upholds all things by the word of his power. Colossians 2.9, for in Christ all the fullness of the deity lives 
in bodily form. And then at the end of chapter 5, Jesus makes this incredible statement uh, in verse 39. You search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. It is these that testify about me. You are unwilling to come to me so that you may have life. Jesus is saying that he wants to give life, but we have to come to him if we want it. And as these religious leaders resisted Jesus, so the question comes to you and me, friends, are we resisting Jesus or are we coming to him for life? Well, as we move to John 6, it records the feeding of the 5,000. It's such an incredible miracle that all four gospels record it. Basically, the crowds are following Jesus like crazy. They're crowding around him. You know, think of yourself. I mean, it's pretty crowded in this room, but you know, if you've ever been to like a, a football game or a concert or a high school graduation where it's just like you're bumping into people and they're all in your face. I mean, that's kind of what it's like where Jesus went as he started doing these miracles. The crowds were just growing and growing and growing and they got hungry. They didn't have food trucks back then, right? I mean, that would, <laughs> they're just out in the middle of the Sea of Galilee area, nothing around. People want to eat. So Jesus decides we're going to feed him. He takes a little boy's lunchbox, five loaves of bread, two fish, supernaturally multiplies it, and they end up having leftovers. And the people go insane over this. Verse 14, the people saw the sign which he had performed. They said, this is truly the prophet who is to come into the world. And remember, like we said uh, earlier, they knew their Bibles. Deuteronomy 18 prophesied this prophet. So they knew, they, this is Jesus, this is it, right? And everybody's so excited. So we see that Jesus shows them compassion by feeding them, but then he does something completely different the next day. He shows them compassion by teaching them. Verse uh, 35, he says, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me will not hunger, and he who believes in me will never thirst. What is Jesus saying here? Well, this was the time of the Passover, John tells us. The Passover is when they celebrated their deliverance from Egypt, from slavery in the book of Exodus. And as they kind of wandered the desert, making their way to the promised land, God fed them what's called manna. It's this supernatural bread from heaven, right? I mean, I love bread, so I'm sure this was some good stuff, right? But um, they had to collect it every day. They learned how to daily depend on God through that. And so Jesus knows that this is on their mind. Also, they just want to eat. Like, they're like, dude, yesterday we got a free meal and a lot of these people didn't have a lot of money. So they're thinking we can get more food today. And I'm not judging them for that. I mean, I me, I love to eat. It's my go-to for everything. If I'm depressed, if I'm uh, anxious, if I'm bored, if I just want to feel better, I mean, I'll go to the food. That's what I got. In fact, I, I had to go on a health journey. I mean, I, was, I lost 50 pounds about five years ago because my health was in serious jeopardy, right? But, so I get this whole idea of wanting to eat. But that is not what Jesus is talking about now. He's not addressing the physical appetite or the physical food. He's talking about spiritual appetite and spiritual hunger when he says that he is the bread of life. And I think you know what I'm talking about. That soul hunger that each one of us have if we're willing to listen. Questions, who am I? What am I here for? What is the meaning to life? What happens after this life ends? God has put a God-sized hunger intentionally inside each one of us that it might push us towards him. And Jesus says, he can satisfy the deepest longings of your soul. He's the source of living water. He's the bread of life. And when they hear this, they want food, physical food, but they hear him saying this. Verse 60 tells us, many of his disciples, when they heard this, said, 
This is a difficult statement. Who can listen to it? But Jesus, conscious that his disciples grumbled at this, said to them, does this cause you to stumble? And we could ask ourselves the same question. When the teachings of Jesus get difficult, what do we do? Because it's not always going to be easy. The teachings of Jesus don't always uh, promise prosperity and health. They can lead to great difficulty in this life. And Jesus doesn't give them the physical food, just this lesson on the bread of life. And then we read in verse 66, as a result of this, many of his disciples withdrew and were not walking with him anymore. So Jesus said to the 12, you do not want to go away also, do you? Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. We have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. And so Jesus just, he makes it clear here that nothing else can grant life, only him. It's not whatever is true for me or true for you or if I go to church or, hey, but I'm a pretty good person or, or it's Jesus plus nothing is what he's claiming. Peter and the disciples, at least in this moment, they get it. And Jesus is saying that he's offering this living water. He's offering that he is the bread of life, the source of life itself. Well, hey, as we close, I want to tell you about a man in our church named Harmon. I uh, met a few years ago. Harmon is uh, a young man, he was about 25 when I met him, who comes from a, a religious background of uh, Sikhism this, or the Sikh faith. I don't know how many of you are familiar with, with Sikhism or Sikh faith. Okay, well, a couple of you. In Fresno, this, uh, the Sikh religion kind of originated in India, and we have a lot of folks in, um, in Fresno who come from that background. He called our church just out of the blue, and he said, hey, I want to talk more about Jesus. And so we found out as we talked to him that he was raised in a Sikh community, but he was more of like a cultural Sikh. But then when his dad died, he wanted to find meaning from his religion. So he began to dive deep into his religion, and he found that it didn't satisfy the longings of his soul. But convinced that there still had to be spiritual truth out there, he said, I'm going to research every single belief system. He even researched atheism. He researched all the religions. And he said, as I researched on the internet, Jesus emerged as somebody unique. So this is the first time I've called a church to ask questions. And so we said, well, would you like to visit our church? He said, sure. He said, what should I bring? And we're like, oh, bring a Bible, maybe a journal if you want to take notes. Dude shows up, ESV study Bible, journal in hand, a half hour early. Then he says, is there a signed seating? And I'm like, no, you can sit wherever you want. He's all, can I sit right in the front? I'm like, yeah. I'm like, dude, I wish all the Christians had these kind of attendance habits. That'd be awesome, right? But um, anyways, over time, we kept meeting over at Starbucks. He'd always show up with a list of questions. Did Jesus really rise from the dead? How do you know the Bible's true? What about evil? And we would just talk and talk for weeks and months. This went on. And then eventually he came and he said, I'm ready to put my faith in Jesus. And then you know what? A few months later, I'm ready to get baptized. And now I'm ready to jump into a small group. I'm ready to serve. And you know what? A couple Sundays ago, he was one of our greeters. And somebody came up to me and they said, hey, hey, there's this, this dude. It wasn't Harmon. It was the other dude. This dude here, he's, he wants a Punjabi Bible. And I can't even talk to him. He doesn't speak English. And I'm like, okay. So I went over to this guy. And, and uh, you know, I just happened to have a Punjabi Bible in my office because Harmon, right? And then I found Harmon and connected him with this guy because Harmon could speak his language. And the point I'm getting at is, is he embraced Jesus as the truth. 
And now he's experiencing things and God using him to reach people in ways that he never could have dreamed. And God's doing things that just amaze us. And, you know, at the end of each encounter people have with Jesus in the book of John, when they hear him or they experience him, they have to decide, was this all coincidence? Could it be explained away? Or is Jesus exactly who he said he was? And what say you, my friends? Who is this Jesus? Let's pray. Father God, I just want to thank you for this time. Thank you for these students and teachers and leaders and that you are here with us tonight. And Lord, as we continue to explore truth, truth be told, we ask that with that perfect combination of your love and your grace and your truth, that you would lead each one of us wherever we're at to turn our eyes and our hearts towards you. In Jesus' name.